Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I'm joined today by Ishita Sharma. Ishita serves as a mentor, mirror, and activator to those who wish to better our world starting within. She helps them embody their truest purpose while rising beyond egocentric paradigms. Ishida's work is the expression of her deepest realizations and it's an invitation into your own. Come to Center, her business, is fueled by her wish to realize a world that lives from enlightened awareness. Ishida has guided leaders from Google, Harvard, MIT, Silicon Valley startups, and global multinationals, and her clients come to her to grow and heal through their deepest challenges and longings while held in their perfect wholeness. Her students and clients include spiritual teachers and seekers, CEOs, healers, scientists, therapists, coaches, and artists. Drawing on her own direct experience and a cultivated capacity to attune to her clients' nervous systems, she points every one of them back to their true center. Ishida sees her role as a bridge between cultures, paradigms, and dimensions, marrying Western intellect and Eastern spirit through the wisdom of the human heart and body. Contending the future of humanity hinges upon healing division within and between us, and Ishita supports individuals and groups alike to wake up, step up, and show up together for the world we wish to see. Before we dive into the episode, I would love to point you in two different directions. First, I would love to point you into... Ishida's group intensive, which she is launching November 10th, it's called Murmurations, and she takes you on a deep dive into all of the beautiful things that we've explored already in the bio and that you'll see in this conversation. What does it mean to come to your own true center? What are your deepest desires internally and for the world? And what's it like to be seen that way in a group and energetically come together to support each other? in a community that really allows you to express your full humanity, your full aliveness. Ishida is such a wonderful practitioner, and I really invite you to check out Murmurations. The link is in the show notes. And the second area that I would love to point you to is Free the Slaves, the organization that Ishida would like to raise awareness for. Ishida tells a really evocative story about how many humans are still held in bondage and captivity today? There's still 30 million slaves in the world, and there's actually some of them that live in the United States. Slavery is not a thing of the past like we think it is. And Ishida's story shares that the cost of one of these human lives is actually $400. Think about that. The price of a human life is $400 and then they will not be in bondage and captivity. So please join me in donating to and raising awareness for this wonderful organization, Free the Slaves. The link for this is also in the show notes. 
in the conversation that Ishita and I have, it's evident right off the bat, literally in the welcome of Ishita into the show, I think that you can sense how grounded my energy is and how grounded Ishita is. There's just something beautiful about her energy that transmits through the airwaves. We talk about many things. One of them is making sense of a world that can't possibly be figured out. Ishida, by trade, was an architect and was very interested in Western intellect and understanding the way the world works, the way the mind works. And she, while always knowing she got lost and off track for a little bit, she finally came back to her center and realized the world can't be figured out. There's something more. And that's where she connected back to her Eastern roots and Eastern spirit and philosophy and her current work really is a marriage of both of those things. She also brings a deep humility to this work. She can laugh a lot about the moments where she doesn't feel whole. She laughs a lot about how silly humans are. She tells lots of things in, in this interview that make me really crack up and laugh. But she also is so grounded in the true essence of what it means to be alive. So with all of that said, Take a deep breath and enjoy what Ishida has for us today. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. <laughs> oh, thank you, Michael. It is such a joy to be with you and everything else that is here with us right now in this moment. <laughs> that you so beautifully invited in right before we hit record on this call. And I'm so curious and excited to see where this conversation leads us. And I want to start with you. I'm really interested in hearing what your answer is to this question. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you grew up in India and uh -huh. eventually moved to the United States. And I'm curious what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up in India. Mm. That's such a sweet question. Our dinner table was different every time. So I grew up in the mountains in India, and then we lived in Delhi for a while. And my father is a sailor or was a sailor. And he would be gone for long times. So often it was just my mother and I. And then my sister was in boarding school. So sometimes she was there and sometimes she wasn't. So it was always different. And there was also like this beautiful way that the neighborhood was integrated in our dinner table in random, random movements. But it was, it was different in that we didn't really have these rituals, you know, but it was an animated space, very animated, very uh, involved. And what else can I say about that? Like we, in India, <laughs> not telling the story, I might have even told it before. In India, we talk about everything there's like very little filtering <laughs> you know 
And I can I can say tell you this anecdote when my mom first came to visit me, when my parents first came to visit me in the States, I believe it was in Louisiana when I used to live there. I turned to them and I said, Hey, we're going to dinner to these people's house. And um, just so you know, here we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about religion. And what was the third thing? I said, politics, no, no talking about politics, no talking about religion. Because I'd learned that, you know, people had sort of steered me and conditioned me to like steer clear of those and money. We don't really talk about money. Yeah. And my mom looked at me and she said, well, then what are we going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about? And she <laughs> said, well, that, that kind of tells you something, right? Like there is, I remember having these rich debates around the television and like the news and uh, animated, you know, fighty conversations that like my white husband sometimes was like, what are you guys doing? You're all yelling at me. Like, no, no, that's just us talking. Like we're just, this is how we talk. <laughs> we're just not taking things that personally, but there was a lot of discussion and yeah, there was a lot of that. Mm. And there was togetherness, a lot of togetherness. Mm. Some of it I found very oppressive. <laughs> Some of it was very healing. But there was no, like, I wasn't outside of the action. I was always in it. So when, when my mom had this way that if she is making dinner or if somebody is cooking in the kitchen, nobody gets to just kind of be outside of that. So someone's chopping the vegetables outside and someone's doing this. And when, like, when I was very little, I used to sit on the countertop right next to my mom and like do whatever was happening. We were all sort of in it together. And that was really rich. Mm. Mm -hmm. How would you describe, you've alluded to it a little bit, like it sounds like there was a lot of action and, and maybe you were vivacious and had lots of energy, but how would you, in your words, describe yourself as a child? Mm. <laughs> Shockingly, not that different from now, but maybe um, I was shy. I was quiet. And I was really playful mm. in the spaces that I felt safe and welcome. Um, I was the naughty one at home. But I was also the good one in many ways, right? All identities that were problematic all eventually, but very curious. And my parents always tell me, like, I was never bored. I never went to my parents and said, I don't have anything to do. I don't, you know, it was, there was so much to explore. And it was such a generative, my childhood is still some of my favorite times. Like I just, I'm just like, how did I, where did that go? You know, so much bursting forth and always reading or like I used to get into trouble for taking my books into the bathroom, <laughs> like, reading in the toilet and then like forgetting I was in there, <laughs> reading at the dinner table, like painting, like there was always something to there's a lot of expression and a yeah sort of a long intense explore exploration yeah 
Um, I was a sensitive child. I'm still a sensitive human. So I felt a lot. And I didn't necessarily know what to do with it. But yeah. And very conscientious, heartbreakingly so. I, I just wish I'd been just a little less responsible. I wish I'd done like some more bad things or any <laughs> overly conscientious kid, like not 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 something I would like to replicate again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I can relate to all of those qualities, Ishida. What I'm about to ask, I it, it, there's a lot in there, but they're all curiosities of mine, and I want you to just answer whatever feels most alive for you from from the thread of the things. What brought you to the U.S.? What informed the decision to initially be an architect? Mm. And I imagine it was a huge culture shock coming from India to the U.S. What was the what was most challenging about moving your life to the States? Mm. Wow, it's surprisingly, it feels tender to feel into that together. I don't know what it was. I was sort of in my own cocoon as an 18-year-old, <laughs> whatever, in my, in my parents' house. And I hadn't really wanted to go abroad. I went to this fancy school and, you know, half my class was going to fancy Ivy Leagues and this. And I had no interest, you know, I had no interest in going somewhere abroad. I was like, I love my country. I want to stay here and serve. And uh, I didn't even sit for the SATs or any of that. I was just like in La La Land. But I wanted to study a lot of different things. Like I um, I was having such a hard time deciding what to study in uni because, like I said, I was interested in everything except maybe <laughs> chemistry and political science. I hated those things. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> civics, it was called civics. And at some point, I remember my sister sat me down. My parents wanted me to go abroad and study the They felt I would do well in a different culture. And I just didn't entertain it and my sister and I were made to share a room this was the beauty of my mother's parenting right like she was adamant that we share a room before we grew apart so we used to share a room and one night we were just chatting and this was like what is, what is the plan like what do you want and we we're just having this thing she's like imagine like not living in our parents house when you're 21 and because I was planning to go to school in Delhi and I said, you know, I'll do architecture and the school behind the house it sounded good, kind of. And she's like, imagine just like leaving home and like doing your own thing. And I was like, oh, that does sound kind of nice, <laughs> you know. And I don't know what it was in that conversation. She she invited me to expand my world tremendously because she had been in boarding school her whole life and she'd seen a world outside of my family that I had not yet experienced in that way, you know? And something in that conversation just hit home. And I was like, the next day I was like, I want to go abroad and uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> they were like, what? And it was, it was such a strange and 
quick, like suddenly I was like, oh, the whole world was on my radar. Mm. And it was just like, I think in the next four weeks, I sat for the SATs and I was like, whatever colleges were still rolling admissions, I like sent my uh, thing to, I found like a few small colleges that I liked. And I went from there and I didn't think about what it would be like beyond that. I didn't think about what America was like. I, I didn't really have a picture. I'd never, actually never flown abroad in my whole life, right? I traveled to other countries as a kid on the ship with my father. I'd taken one flight in my whole life as a maybe like four-year-old. And none of that really mattered. None of that really made sense. I was like, ah, oh, cool. I can be outside of my house. I can study all the things. Because you can double major and have double minors and all of these things. And I was like, this sounds good. Let's go. And uh, that's kind of how it happened. And my family and I, like, we all had to sort of go through this process of calibrating. Like, how are we going to pay for this? Are we going to get scholarships? Like, what's this big financial thing showed up? And my mother finally, who was the one pushing me to go, started to hesitate. She's like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? But then my intention was so clear and says, I know this is happening. I'm going. And um, you love the story. There was this indecision, yeah, in the house. And so we did what we do. And my mom was like, okay, let's just be quiet and meditate. And like, we'll just write down yes and no on a piece of paper. Literally. <laughs> so I, I still have this little yes on my altar. I wrote down... I, tore a page of my diary and cut it into two. I wrote a Y and an N, folded it up, put it on the altar. My mom and I stood quietly at her altar. And I never remember like formally meditating or any of that, but there I was in the silence and um, I did what I always did. I sort of grounded and went all encompassing outside in the galaxies and I just felt the wholeness of the world and I said show me the way opened my eyes my mom picked out the piece of paper it said yes and there it was that's how that decision was made <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wow what a story I still can't believe we did that gambled my life and my mom I remember her saying, I was in a bad mood, so this doesn't count. And I was like, no, 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 this is it. There's no no wavering here. This is so clear. We're not going to entertain that, you know? And then we both, of course, had to come to terms with our grief and our uh, process. But it was a big thing for my parents to let me go. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And we had no idea how big that movement would be. For me, for us, for our family. Yeah. We couldn't even have imagined. Well, it sounds like before you had the, before it became your vocation and before you had the language for it, you were practicing that full body yes. And. Mm. <laughs> tuning into like what is what does yes feel like in me right? <laughs> that's a great reflection to have thank you <laughs> yeah yeah I'm finding myself curious so 
I'm making up the story that that became maybe the, the compass that you use to inform your maybe future decisions. And when did, what did your yes look like leaving architecture into the next phase of your life? Wow. So there's a way that I want to speak to this specifically because it touches this very different process, mental mm. process. And you had asked when I ignored your question, you said, what was the difference? Well, so much of a difference, right? Uh, one of the things that I grappled with as I started to mesh with Western mind, like meeting this way of, you know, in America, everything's about optimizing. We make it things efficient and like everything is, you know, it's very intellectual in a way. And it's very, um, I, I don't know, there's just a different way of um, choosing like scheduling, like this blew me away, like we schedule times to talk to each other in the future. And <laughs> like, it's a weird thing. If you think about what we do, it is really strange. We're arranging ourselves. We're like so obsessed or so like there's this way of trying to like control or I don't know how to say this in a way that maybe lands better but I'm projecting into the future habitually mm -hmm. and that just is a whole other way of navigating the world and I realized somewhere in the neurosis I felt shamed um confused, bewildered, um, sort of the wrongness. I, I, I believed the story for a minute there that the way that I made decisions was not okay because that's not how decisions are supposed to be made because I've always been a person who sort of follows the flow, just like coming to America, like didn't want to do it, next day wanted to do it, said, okay, let's go, and there we are. And suddenly now there was like, have you thought this through? And I have like, how does one impact? And it was like starting to try to be in this way of, you know, um, I don't know how to even say it, like arranging my life. Uh -huh. And it became really hard. <laughs> A lot of this work now is about undoing that both in myself. And I think that's the freedom that does come, but to go from what I now consider being in the natural flow of life to trying to put myself in the boxed approach of, you know, the right way, the efficient way, the good thought through way. And then recognizing this is not working for me and it's also causing a lot of pain in others and then like trying to undo that. Like that's been a huge journey in and of itself. So that was one of the big differences. Mm took a long time to notice because it's it became the water I swam in, right? And in the leaving, so my parents had a condition. They said, if you go to the States, we want you to study computer science because that is the thing that you're going to make lots of money doing. And, um, you know, I didn't mind it. I enjoyed learning. I loved systems. So great, I'll do CS for you. I'll do physics for me. I'll do creative writing for my soul. And then <laughs> I'll do architecture when I graduate. Okay, that was my plan. 
And I got to university and it was very clear, like the first year in uni, I I was studying CS and taking, you know, physics and these minors or whatever. But my soul was so hungry for color. Like I've always been an artist. And in the summer, I found this internship with this really beautiful artist there. And I was like making pottery and writing code to make these Tauruses and these designing these toys that are actually finally out. We used to call them jigs. And now it's called Lux Blocks. Michael um, managed to do it. Um, writing these programs, like just like, all the dimensions of creativity were alive, right? Like I was drawing anime. I was like Michael, um, what's his name? Michael Achera. He was my mentor in Knox. He was a friend of Knox. So I was studying with him and just playing around. I was like, I just need to play with color. I need to make things because this stuff is like really heady and I'm like getting away from the juice. And in the end of the summer, he looked at me and he's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this CS? And why are you doing this physics? Like, you should just go to architect school now. And I was like, what's the hurry? Like, there's so much. He's like, no, I'm seeing you draw. I I feel where you're going. He's like, I have this friend, called his friend over for dinner, who is going to go be the head of design in LSU. He said, Rick came over for dinner. He makes good goat cheese. And I was like, I like architecture. He was like, you can design your own major, do whatever you want. I said, great, let's do it. Because I was having this sort of, these worlds were not integrating. Mm. And it was really hard because when I went to LSU, they have a great physics program. So I was in there. I was studying physics. I was doing architecture and Still, I couldn't feel the like juiciness of life. Like the the poetry was missing. Mm. And I remember coming back from physics class and I talk about this a lot, like one day and we just, we had just been doing time warp equations. We were just uh, mapping some, I can't even remember what exactly. But I came back and I, my heart was just broken and I was so sad. Because I was asking the questions that I guess we ask here now, like the big questions of who am I? What is consciousness? How does life work? And physics was not delivering. And it was very irritating because I bought the Kool-Aid. I thought the physics was going to give us all the answers. That's why I was interested in it because physics means description of how reality works to me, right? And it wasn't quite there. And I was so pissed off by all the uncertainty and all the like, you know, that I sat, I literally was, I remember I used to have this little walk-in closet and I sat, buried myself in my clothes and I was just crying. And I was like, this is just crap. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not getting any closer. I can't even feel it. That We're just talking about things. We don't even have any experiential idea. Or like, I don't know what I want, you know, big <laughs> crisis. And, um, and that was the impetus. I was like, okay, I don't know. But might as well make something beautiful. Let's use design to create meaning and connection and sort of bridge these two divides that I've experienced in my life. Like one culture that is so connected, so rich in human, I don't know how to say this, like closeness, togetherness. And this other where we are so disconnected and we have all these rich things and like all this wealth and there's so much depression. There's anxiety. There's like... Everyone is really anxious. There's this big space between people and like there's this plasticity. Yeah. 
and I, I'm I I'm aware that I'm sounding really negative towards our culture. It's my country now, the U.S. But I was so acutely aware of that contrast, right? And I also see the negativity or like the shadow side of being in the Indian culture, which is one of the reasons I came. So there was this want in me to sort of bridge these two ways of being and using, well, what I know best is how to um, use shape, form, and space. That's what led me to architecture. Hmm. So it was my search for meaning, kind of like yours. It was all these endeavors were an attempt at threading together some shred of meaning, some shred of um, understanding so I could actually feel the correctness. I don't want to say rightness, but like some semblance of place of the in in the world, my place in the world as a servant, as a participant, as a whatever, but like the whole thing was asking why. Mm. Mm. There's so much in here, Ishida. I know I took (laughs) This is one of my favorite things to do. I love asking questions and then shutting up and listening for long (laughs) extended periods of time. I wasn't hearing what you were saying as a, a criticism necessarily mm-hmm. of of the US but rather a maybe a limitation is the word that comes to mind in as much as a, a lot of the way that our society is organized especially as it pertains to work or producing in our lives is arranged mm-hmm. around uh control and having a plan <laughs> and uh, knowing some sort of future outcome and then doing everything to make it happen. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) You just outlined it, yes. (laughs) And there's, uh, it seems to me like there's an inevitability that eventually down that path that we all come to some sort of realization that this, that's not it. (laughs) Uh, In so many ways, I've heard the story a million times in, in a million different ways, but especially in our field, Ishida, in coaching, there are, I hear a lot of times there's a hunger to figure out life and figure out the world. And it starts in some sort of material way. It might be through mathematics and physics. It might be through the sciences. It might even be through something that's closer to where we ended up, like philosophy. Mm-hmm but they are all so limited because they're all organized around the mind understanding something yeah. material and physical in the world that isn't, it's not complete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What comes up for you as I share that? Yeah. It's just beautifully named is mm. what I'm feeling. And I'm feeling the, um, you know, I think I'm still pissed. And there's a big part of me that's still really irritated by the whole, <laughs> this is fascinating, I have to say publicly. Um, yeah, I feel really frustrated. Um, as somebody who, in retrospect, I can feel the right goodness, the sort of connection. And like now it all makes sense, right? 
I always knew. I was always attuned to something deeper, always, never forgot that. But I was, and this is the victim in me talking, I was made to question that. And I gave that up. Let's be more precise. Like I remember the moment as a very young child when I started to uh, feel ashamed of my faith. Because it was not scientific or because my mother was an atheist and I, if she didn't believe in God, then uh, how could I know? And um, my dad always did. I don't know why I didn't go with his side of the equation, but he, he couldn't explain to me how it works. So, and I, I needed both left and right. I needed, you know, but I was really, um, I think it's a, it's a marvelous thing in retrospect. If I let that frustration show me, like it's just, it's kind of fascinating to see, right? You can you can be so, I think all of us, maybe I project, I don't know. I believe all of us come in with that connection to source. And we eventually are made into people, which is good. We want to be made into people. I want to have an ego. I want to have a separate self. I just need it to be in service of the whole. And if I don't have attention on the whole, then I'm in trouble, right? But something around me has to have attention on the whole for me to remember my place in the big screen. So it's amazing that you can come in knowing and then you forget and then you have to remember. And that's the whole game of life. And I, I guess I know I came to play it, but it's still fascinating that like that can happen. And we can get so lost in the dream. Right? The labyrinth is a very um, <laughs> appropriate, <laughs> appropriate summation of this quest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I know that your I don't know if this is your business name per se, but I know that your website is come to center. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And. I'm wondering what were the ways that you came back to center? I know we're probably going to skip over so many parts of your story, but you found your way back. You remembered you're here. What were some of the maybe paradigmatic moments that helped you remember, come back to your center and, and your wholeness and and Mm. being the, the person you always felt you were meant to be. Mm. still in the process Mm. Mm. it's a funny question because sometimes when people say so how long have you been on the spiritual path I'm like (laughs) how long has time been (laughs) (laughs) what I can say is there were a couple of key moments. I mean, I just, I've always, luckily, and I, I, again, bias is that I believe everybody has this capacity and remembers, and we just keep turning our attention to other things. So I remember being, hmm, there's so many moments I can name, but the pivotal one, I, I believe when this, shredding this like getting naked started really Um, when the conviction when I started to see that it may be perhaps for the first time I started to consider that I was not the one who was fully crazy 
And it was the neurosis around me that I, um, for a reason, could not be a part of. I was working in Dallas. I was um, an architect in a big firm. I was being harassed. I didn't know that. Um, I'm still. I still get scared when I tell the story because I was made to sign a um, piece of paper that said I, w- I was not being harassed and it was okay. And I was an immigrant. And if I lost my job, I would lose my visa and I would have to pack my bags and leave the country. I think the grace period was like one day. And there was so much fear. There was like all these identities that I accumulated my whole life, like a student, brilliant designer, good person so much like years of inculcation of obedience that's what um, I was taught in my family in my school in India like there's a cultural difference right like in my bosses at in that company used to say you should promote yourself more and I'd be like we don't do that like, I don't like every time I would win an award, they would want to send an email. And I was like, nah, I, this is like really embarrassing. You know, so like, where is the place for myself and a conditioned Indian self in this like very like show yourself off and like toot your horn a lot and like all of those ideas and like this idea that everyone around me has my best interest in mind. That's what I was brought up with. Like you trust your elders, you trust the people around you. Everyone is working together for your good. <laughs> and, and so it's, it was really hard for me to recognize that maybe they were actually trying to fire me, which many of my colleagues and good friends would take me aside and be like, you've done some things to piss someone off and you got to like, stop. You got to find yourself a new job. And I was like, no, no, I need to work harder. Uh, I'm probably not doing something well enough, right? So the self-shaming, the self, like the fear or like deference, all of that was alive. But there was something in me that knew that some everything here was just like nothing I wanted to grow into. That was a waking up. That was a falling apart. That was a disillusion, complete disillusion of like all ideas of <laughs> what I am, what the world is, nothing to stand on. Not even my family. My family was like, beta, work harder. Yeah. And I, I remember being at work New Year's Eve, December 31st, doing a project that was in no way appropriate for my level of education just being set up to fail, you know, like not possible. Like you cannot save this kind of thing. So give it to the person. Yeah. And I called my dad and I was so angry and crying. And he was like, that's good. You should work harder. And he, they didn't know what I was going through because I didn't know what I was going through. Yeah. But that's all we knew. And in this like crazy time like something in my head was like starting to see behind the things and like I was watching the dynamics I was like oh my god people can create a reality and really project it and really believe it like all of them must behave 
as if this is real. And like, they would come to me and say things that I was just like, are you serious? Like, is this really happening? Are you really believe this is a real thing? But the group projection was so clear, right? And like, as I was being fired, I was breaking up with a 10 year relationship that I'd had that was falling apart and all ideas of love and connection and intimacy and like what it means to be together that was falling apart and yet like there was this real freedom real like joy in my being because I started to like I feel like my body's still lighting up it was exquisitely painful I don't mean to minimize that but so much excitement because I could see the real nature of things behind. Like I wasn't believing the illusion that I had been believing. And it was magnificent. I was like, wow, been dreaming this whole time. This is not how it works. And something was coming and I couldn't name what it was, but I was I knew it. I remember saying to my sister, I don't care if I'm being fired. I don't care if I break up. I don't care what happens because I'm at the cusp of a breakthrough. Something's coming. And what was coming was a return to this, my inner harmony. The first time of being like, oh, trusting what's in here, this discernment. Like, I don't want that. I don't want to be promoted in a profession that looks really distorted. I don't want to participate in these dynamics in this way. Yeah, breathe. Yeah. And it was just delightful. Like, I remember a moment I've spoken of this before. I've, like, I had all these ancient texts in my room. I remember laughing one evening. I, I had been asked to do some ridiculous thing for work. Like, I had to write a letter about something like why I'm too designy and I shouldn't be designy. And I'm just like, this is a joke. <laughs> what a fucking joke. My, my, my job title is designer. Um, and I just remember laughing and I found the Bhagavad Gita and I was looking at it. I swear I was looking at me and I was feeling like, wow, this separation of what you named so beautifully, Michael, that like needing to understand everything with your head was not going to take me anywhere. Mm. Like this was not something that I'd been asking for proof, you know. All the while I knew the proof of God was that I'm alive. That's it. You take it, you leave it. Your discernment. And in that moment, those paradigms sort of separated. I was like, oh, I can never actually understand what I know. I can never prove what I know. I can never explain it. And how cute that I've been spending a hell of a lot of energy and a hell of a lot of time and so much anguish in trying to prove things to myself that I know, trying to understand things that can't be understood by my mind and using the mind to do that. That's cute. I just laughed. I laughed for so long and I was like, okay, the next day it became clear. I was like, I need to resign from this job. I need to like break up with this man. I need to like move on with my life, whatever comes. I don't know, but it's the most important questions are getting clearer. 
Does that make sense? Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> still painful, right? Like still really painful. I had to live through all the human bits and like seeing the design from of the whole and still like acting out my part in the play and like seeing everybody else act theirs and seeing the beauty and like suddenly the people who were trying to fire me became really generous, right? I was like, oh, you're just playing your role. This is so not right for me. I'm not built to be in corporate America. I need to find a different place. You're so right. We do not fit here. You know, and there was no no enemy left anywhere. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a in a way, it's it's reminding me of even the the namesake of my podcast, which of course is an ode to Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. The, the name of that implies that meaning is somewhere specifically <laughs> that it could be found uh, out there and mm-hmm. I'm on the quest to find it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, in doing 40 plus interviews, and I probably knew this before, but I have finally oh, landed. Okay. <laughs> I knew before, but it's ultimately this, I, it's a very parallel, similar realization to what you've had. The answer is, oh, meaning is just something that all of us are making up all the time. And it lives within us. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in some ways that has been for me incredibly destabilizing and my mm-hmm. mind, my mind can click in and be like, what, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? I, there's, mm-hmm. there's no answer. There's yeah. nothing out there that's going to fill this hole. Uh-huh. And oh, I've heard just story after story of people who have achieved. I mean, Will Smith comes to mind as someone who has done all of the things <laughs> achieved Wonderful. all of the things amassed to the biggest fortune married. yeah love considered that an achievement I, I have to rant here like yeah you know like the squirrel outside i see my squirrels in my yard and they like go and get their nuts they make their nests <laughs> they live their life and it's not like this grand celebration of like i accumulated the most nuts it's like, <laughs> i came i lived and we're like, oh, now I have a house. Now I have a blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like, we yeah. were just, we're just living, you know, we're just like going through these motions and we consider them achievements, even like enlightenment experiences. Like, yes. I have achieved my, well, what, 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 what is that? <laughs> like, we just remember the most basic, <laughs> you know, what are we achieving? I don't know. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Well, ultimately, what I'm pointing to is the hilarity and the silliness <laughs> of all of that. That we and we see it on display all the time, and we think, I I'll speak for myself. There's a way that sometimes I think, uh, well, that's them. But if I had all those things, like I would really have it made. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in America are living life like that. But I digress. I would love to hear words are probably not going to do this justice, but I would love to hear how you would describe what you do as a practitioner now. And I know like, for instance, one uh, element of your work is embodiment. And I believe you studied under core energetics. Is that correct? Mm, I yeah. studied core. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm just wondering how you would describe 
what you do now mm. to folks. Thank you for that invitation and not to be facetious, but I would say I do what's needed and I try to do as little as possible. Right? And what happens when we show up kind of like we are here. I live my life consciously and I share presence. That's a good way that I can say that. And the cool thing is that a lot happens in this way without much pushing or pulling needed. There, there can be directing, there can be weaving with, but it's, we can put lots of words that will sound very good and important. But at the most basic level, it's us just showing up. I show up as fully as I can in the moment. That's what I do. In service of myself and others, which happens to be the same thing most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's something still uh, cooking in me from that long rant that I went on about. Go ahead. First moment of opening, right? I don't know what it wants to be named here, but there is this way that we forget. We forget our connection to the everything. Either we self-aggrandize, we become too important, or we diminish ourselves, right? And in Buddhism, they say this really beautifully. There's, I'm going to botch it up, but more than, less than, and equal to are all symptoms of comparative, competitive mind. And I find that when I'm actually able to be present, when I'm here, as I am with you, there is this sort of tenderness that's always here. There is this uh, lightness. And there is a sacredness that shows up. And we don't necessarily have to define you don't have to uh, push pull. But something happens that's exciting. That's like following the movement of, of life. And whether it's pain, whether it's joy, whether it's shame, whatever it is, there's a way that I can see life's calling itself back in all of these movements. And there's as we can sort of step out of the constructs, the ideas like the shoulds, the what I should be and how I shouldn't and all of that and be with what is, like really be with what is and be with myself as I am. There's a healing movement that follows, that emerges sort of, it shows us how to go. So we go, we go with full Ownership of ourselves. Mm. Mm. I can give it words in a in a way that might make more sense if you didn't feel what was being said. It's about becoming more present, more embodied. What what does that mean? That means being here in the in here now, through my human form, integrating my human parts and my divine parts. However you understand what the divine dimension of life is, the sacred dimension of being alive, something bigger than just me and me. We start to live together more and more. And then 
we can share, we can be crazy and messy in like all of our colors and never forget there's something greater. I just want to name something in this moment that feels palpable to me. Hmm. There's, there's a way in which you specifically show up that there's a naturally healing presence and energy hmm. of, about you that where the words don't need to be spoken and I can instantly drop into what for me feels like safety, connection, belonging, dropping my projection of the <laughs> matrix and all the, all the shoulds and all the all the things on my to-do list or what, whatever other stuff might be taking up my bandwidth if I am not in a space with you. And some of the best coaching that I've been on the receiving end of has been in that form where there are no words being spoken. There is just someone's energy the field that's created between us <laughs> i know i'm i might sound like i'm getting out there but there's there's i live a, out there honey yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking more to the listener than to you on this one because i know that i i know that you live out there <laughs> but yeah and even despite all that there's there's still a way in which when I show up as coach there, it's so ingrained in me that there's like something I need to be doing or mm -hmm. specific trajectory that I need to take someone on that is counter to what we do. And something else that I want to name is I'm imagining, you know, sometimes like I'm with friends and they ask me, what is, what is the difference between coaching and therapy or what is, you know, what is coaching? I don't really get it. And there's a way in which that instantly clicks in me, this need to make it sound impressive. Mm -hmm. And something I want to name about your articulation just now is that there's just a full acknowledgement of, <laughs> I don't need the words that these <laughs> Oh my gosh, Michael, that's music, right? Because for a long time... I thought I needed to say it just the right way so that somebody could understand. Yes. And I was in so much turmoil. Like, how do I sum up what I know can't be summed up? Then, Well, then that's a problem, right? Yeah. Just enough to make the other person trust me. Huh. Right? So if you look at my bio, there's all this, like, she works with Harvard leaders or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, I've had so much resistance to putting anything in my bio. This was this is the other distortion. Right? I was like, feel who I am. Feel who you are. Surrender to the magic of the moment. We'll sit. We'll see what wants to be seen as it wants to be seen. And here's where you pay me, and let's go. And then it took a lot of humility, actually, on my part to drop my ideals and say, oh, you know, even though you come to me, perhaps not everybody, a lot of people, so we can deconstruct the identities that you're wearing. You need me to own a shape and a form and a series of identities so that you might trust me to take you on that journey. I was pissed about this. <laughs> Very pissed. I was like, I'm not a coach. I don't identify as a coach. 
I'm not a therapist. I don't identify as a my healer. I don't think I am. Who can call themselves a healer? There's only one thing that heals, and like, I'm just a person going about. There's no word that makes sense. And yeah, like there's this beauty in finally surrendering to like it's never going to make sense. It's always going to be changing because there is no such thing that isn't changing. There's no things, only processes. And what makes me want to make fixed this thing? So yeah, like this need to be impressive. That's the part that I I still sit with sometimes. Like, what do you do? Well, I I don't really know. And so it's been really freeing to be like, you know, I don't I don't really know if I can describe it. It's just it's something that needs to be experienced and. If you're interested, you can come. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing for a lot of reasons, but there's a, there's a great irony around. My wife and I were just having a conversation the other day about it, not coaching fields, fields that are ostensibly easier to describe. Mm-hmm. And it's very common for us as Americans to have no idea how to describe what we do or describe like what our family members do or what <laughs> our friends do. <laughs> and and yet for some reason there's, and I never, you know, my, I was trained as an accountant in college. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I, and I still do it part-time mm-hmm. and there's a way that accounting is so easy to describe, but if someone really presses me to yeah. say like, what are you really doing? <laughs> Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, government has made some rules and I'm... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, really and, but for whatever reason, I, I get the sense that as, like you were saying, coach, therapist, healer, we, we feel more of a pressure to like have the perfect language around it instead of simply providing the experience I, I i might be projecting but that has certainly been true for me and i'm wondering when when someone shows up to work with you where are they usually i i don't want to paint with too broad of strokes because you probably work with a whole breadth of different circumstances but where is someone usually in their life and like what experience are they about to be taken into usually Mm, that's a good thing for me to think about. I feel really, really lucky in that at this point in my life, those who come to me have are sort of ripe and ready. I don't know how to say this. Yeah. They, um, it's sort of a self-selecting equation, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to work so hard in that sense of like introducing a well we still introduce new paradigms but i don't know i struggle where are they what do they want well let me feel into who i'm with now there's a lot of people who come when when the matrix starts to have a crack kind of like me where i was you know, in my journey, that was the first opening. And uh, I was lucky that life showed me itself in a way that, you know, what was unasked for was not sought after, was not, there was no one guiding it. Well, there's lots of people guiding it. 
Um, but a lot of people turn towards in time of crisis. And a lot of that crisis is fueled by what we were just talking about is like, I have my degrees from MIT. I have my like um, whatever million dollar corporation. I have my like wife and kids and I have my, you know, careers. And like I have all the things and I'm empty inside and there's something not clicking. Right. So I've done, I've done the check boxes. I know this is not going to get me what I actually really crave. And uh, what is that? Which is a really beautiful moment, you know, because the best way to know that these ideas are not going to bring me fulfillment is to actually get the, get the things, get the stuff, do the, get the accolades. And then there's a, a lot of people who are, um, like you named, like just drawn to being in shared field. And uh, there, there's something really beautiful about that place in life. There's a few people in murmurations, and I was really humbled by their uh, share. This is maturity, right? Like along the path we mature. And at some point, it's like, oh, I don't need to be in crisis to attend to what's important. And then there's a point on the path where it's like, I don't have, there's nothing like, pressing and no no big fires need to be put out and there's this part of me that just wants to go this way and i know it wants to go this way and i don't know why and i don't really need to know why and those are the most interesting and juicy right like interactions where someone just shows up we feel the good rightness of this and we say okay we want to spend some time in this sacred dream of our lives walking together because something's going to show us where we are going to go what i don't know and then as we walk we find that out it shows itself and it's really magnificent but i i believe you know i i have clients all the way from you know school teachers single moms to like incarcerated youth sometimes i i want to do more work with them right children and um, so different so fun and there's a range there's a range of longing on the outside but in the inside it's actually just the same longing it's only one thing that draws us to go anywhere it's that desire to be and I will name it this way, but you can understand it here in many ways. It is that integration of my little self with my magnificent, magnanimous, all-encompassing self, who I am as my egoic personality, emotional, physical being, and my universality. It's like that. That is the longing weaving itself underneath all these longings. And so it doesn't really matter where or who and when or why you come. When you come, the thing that does everything <laughs> works itself and we go. And there's one more thing I want to name specifically because there is this bias of attention in this way of speaking and in this world that we inhabit where we say we meet without an agenda. Well, that is true, but I do hold an agenda for everybody that I meet. And it's just not a very... Um, commonly understood thing as an agenda, but my agenda is that we 
embody our sacred humanity fully and completely. My agenda for you and for me is that we stand here as awake, aware, empowered, enlightened beings, taking right place on the wheel of life. Like that is a massive agenda. I think I, it's the biggest one that we can ever have. Right? So whatever it is, the presenting issue that is the closest to our heart. That's the that's the catalyst and the big agenda is being <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there is that. Mm. Well, our shared friend Yotam Schachter has I believe he attributes this to his father who was a rabbi. He said that plants are heliotropic and they grow towards the sun, and humans are theotropic and you can fill in the blank with the word, but we grow towards universe, God, oneness, a connection to something much bigger than us. And it, what I hear you saying is that whatever the presenting challenges that someone is showing up with, they're going towards that, whether consciously or unconsciously. Exactly. And, and there's you're no shining hurry. a light on it. Yeah. yeah. No hurry. And, you know, the big... Thing, I guess I'm still maturing, but one of the things that I think is a marker of my own maturity is to realize and relax Yeah. along the way. Because for a long time, there was this fire burning in my skin. I was like, itches all over the place. Like, what are we doing? Why are we like, everybody's buying houses and cars and like having marriages and like going about these human things. They don't know who they are. And I don't know who I am. How are we? How? What? Ah! <laughs> and it's like, oh, now on the other side, it's like, yeah, I want to have a baby and a house. I want to have a yeah. car and a husband and a wife and all of the things. Like, I want this for all of us. Like, please fulfill these desires. Like, you get to have the life that you've come here to live. And it's different from mine. And it's going to look so different. But all of it is good and it's okay. Like, you get to have an incarnation where you never think about spirituality consciously. And that's perfect. Mm. No problem. Like, hey, no, no worries. You know, because if you don't, then you can't move to the next stage. I, I've probably had many lifetimes of like saying that. Like, and one of my teachers always says, "You're here because you've probably been a warrior in many lives, and you've done the thing. Like, you've done the conquest, killing. You've done the like pleasure fulfilling you've done the like yogi alone in the cave you've done the mountain you've done the thing now it's like okay how do you put it together but before that you can't put it together so we all get to have the game that we're playing and it's good and it's all going the same place whether you believe it or not that's okay Mm. from what i can see what i can know it seems true but i don't know ultimately i have no idea yeah Mm. Well, I there are a couple of curiosities in me mm-hmm. right now, Ishida, but I would love to actually kick it to you and ask you, like, what feels alive for you to explore? We, we've got a little, mm-hmm. we're towards the back end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. What haven't we named already? Or what would you like to expand and expound on mm-hmm. that we've already well, named? Well, I kind of want to talk to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to hear more from you in this in this search for meaning, right? This beautiful, and I see you seen through it. You named it. Um, I'm curious 
you sort of alluded to where you've settled and and I forget the exact words that you used right but yeah I would love to explore with you this idea of meaning hmm. so this isn't going to be a direct answer to your question right yeah. now but it's what feels most alive because you just named it and it resonated so freaking deeply with me it's unbelievable there's a way i mean i'll speak personally instead of in generalities thank you my the course of my life was for the first i'm 31 years old now i would say the first 25 years of my life were very much the american ideal of get as educated as possible get a stable job find someone you want to spend the rest of your life with have kids with them, get a nice house, have a dog, we'll all <laughs> go on and collect as many experiences and things as possible. And a few years into my accounting career, there's there was probably there were lots of knocks on the door of wake up, Michael, this is not the thing for you. Uh, a specific question that comes to mind for me was, I remember complaining a lot about my job. My first job was at a big accounting firm. And my parents would say, okay, like there's a, I, I know that it's tough right now. You're working crazy hours, but can you see maybe five, 10, 15 years down the line that that would be a place you'd want to be? And the answer was, <laughs> a yeah, right. It was, it was a resounding no. Yeah. And, and I would say that, but I said, but, like you, Ishida, it was like, well, but I have plenty of time for that to become true for me. Like, there's something wrong with me for not realizing that that is that's the thing right there. Yeah, be a, part, be a partner. You need to it. learn how to do that. Yes, I was yeah. literally like my sister used to say, "You need to learn how to how the world works," mm -hmm. and this is how the world works. And I was yes. like, "Oh, I, I didn't get the memo on this. I got it really." <laughs> yeah. Yes. Same. Yeah. It's same, 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 but different. And eventually, a, a lot of other things that are now staples in my life, like nourishing movement, nourishing food, a lot of those things started to click into place, yeah. where I began to trust myself a lot more. Mm -hmm. And the last domino to begin to fall was where what do I do with my professional life now? I was with the, the woman that I'm now married to and a lot, everything seemed to be going right. And I already had stirred up a little bit like, well, Michael's, he's different now. He's, he's changing. And I became comfortable with that. And I, I don't know if you know Michael Stern, but he's in the RPC community. He was the first coach I worked with and that was in 2019. So I, I started working with Michael in 2019 and I was asking those bigger questions. Finally, who am I? When have I felt the most joy in my life? What are the things that I'm most drawn to around pain? Like what's, what are problems or challenges in the world that, that bring lots of pain in me and that I think are fixable? And really began to live into these bigger questions with, I mean, given the framing that I was in, I still thought there was an answer and was looking for that answer but uh, there was at least movement in the direction of i know that i'm not in the right place i enrolled mm -hmm. at the institute for integrative nutrition to get a coaching certification 
And I'll, I'll fast forward now. I think that really opened me up into the, wow, like <laughs> everything that we've been given in this life, uh, at least in the context of what it means to live the American dream. I don't know how much I agree with any of it. And what resonated most about what you just shared was that my uh, it started to awaken in me all the the rebel parts of myself that wanted to kind of punch back and say, well, look at this idiot who's walking down the street, like lifeless to their zombie job. And mm-hmm. I started to just kind of do the same thing in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. down with the material world. I can't believe everyone mm-hmm. spends their whole life looking for houses mm-hmm. and Mm. I believe everyone spends so much time not enjoying the present and trying to go on vacation and buying watches. And I, mm. that still is very alive in me that there's like, I can find myself in places of righteousness or contempt around that. And when I am actually, so to bring this home around my search for meaning, there's a way in which a, a lot of the content of my life, if you looked at what I am doing, doesn't have to change at all (laughs) for me to feel like I am living the most incredibly rich, fulfilling, meaningful life. And there are parts of me that still are like, but Mike, like accounting is not a meaningful job, dude. Like you are doing tax returns. It's monkey I really need help with mine. I'm going to recruit you this year. And Ishita, it's almost on like a daily basis and I'm getting I'm getting better and better at this, but it's like on a daily basis when I'm doing the accounting work, which is half of my week now and the other half is interviews like this and working with coaching clients. I wrestle with like, there's no way that so-and-so would find this meaningful or yeah, mm-hmm. I get in this like comparative. And when I really can drop in, it's like, no, Mike, like you are working with you're in this connected web of other humans and you at all times are like, you don't have to be searching so hard. <laughs> it's all here right now. Meaning is to be had in any moment. So yesterday on the, on the surface was, was like the most ordinary day. And I just, I had so many interactions with, with coworkers where there was just like a base in my experience now, there was really just a baseline level of humanity. Like I took five minutes to talk to them and they were so moved by that. They were like, thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Nobody is smiling. Yeah. So I have, I've slowly begun to let go of when I started this quote unquote, started the, the more conscious journey of trying to become the you know the best version of myself in so many words i finally realized that's available at all times it doesn't matter what i'm doing that's how you're living it's how you're living so that's really what i've arrived at and what a beautiful realization it is so beautiful mm. yeah so many ideas of what even meaning looks like get in the way of meaningful likeness Uh, that really resonates at so many levels I remember realizing my job was not to design the building 
you know, when I remember, like, oh, yeah, there's so much happening. And that's just one part of the whole. And there's something that you're saying, and as I'm feeling you name it, like, it's interesting to me because I haven't really tried to put words into what meaning really is. And uh, there's two things, actually. And remind me if I forget, because they both feel exciting. One is, what is it in the moment that makes it meaningful? Mm. What's happening? And that's where my juice flows. That's both the work I do and how I want to live. And that's my sort of compass. And then there's this other side of it, which is um, like, there's a, there's a humility and accepting that we're not having perfect lives. Yes. There's a freedom and a relaxation and a humility in, uh, in allowing ourselves to have a very imperfect life, a very ordinary life, to not be my best self. I'm not my best self most days. I don't know what that even is. I'm awkward in my life. Life is so awkward sometimes. And there's a profound grace that opens when I let myself have that. Yeah. You know, and it's very uh, arrogant, actually, to imagine that my life is about living in some kind of way where I don't have to experience pain or shame or fill in the blank. Yeah. Mm. And sort of know what I am or know something very definitively like and it's something i do struggle with because especially in speaking you know i get told a lot well your website doesn't really market you as an expert in your field <laughs> you're not really owning your power like a lot of marketing people tell me this and they're like you're, you when you speak you're, you're not like sounding like some and I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And there is a way of speaking about, let's take that. That's a fascinating example, right? Because there's this understanding that I have to be very flashy or some kind. Or the traditional marketing model is this, or it appears to be, is like, shit sucks. The, this is a problem. And no one else is doing this. And I'm doing this. And therefore, you should come here because I am the expert and I'm so like together. And uh, even if, I mean, I think there's something good about owning your place and your power and your voice. And I want that for everybody. But there's this way that I resist that, like, because I'm like, yeah, this is a messy journey. I'm on it too. And I was I felt ashamed this morning when I did something that I was like, why did I do that? Yeah. And I don't expect my life to ever be in a place where I don't have that. That's actually what causes the suffering more than yes. the actual awkwardness of my discombobulated, like very present, very blah blah blah. And there I am, like forgetting my plane or what, you know. <laughs> So it's just like all the colors are here. So I don't know. And then there's a relaxation in that that happens. Yeah. Oh, God. 
that landed so that touches <laughs> me in so many ways. There's <laughs> oh, there's there's a way in which I have now just kind of mapped my consciousness, my my whole life's consciousness over spiritual work. And I'm like, come on, Mike, like you're too enlightened to react to things like this. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a right way. There's a right way. A lot of people tell you that. My husband and I used to chuckle. And of course, like, you know, I, I live this work. I don't just teach it. I don't just whatever. And there's always like somebody who's like, well, you, you're supposed to be this way. You do. The, and I'm like, still a human. Like yes. still, still, still wearing a bodysuit, still going about bumbling around my life. Like it's not stopping. <laughs> it's stopping <laughs> here. But the more you buy into that, the more pain, right? Yes. Well, it's such a beautiful place to start to transition to the back end of the conversation here. There's usually a couple of questions that I ask and uh, I'm curious to ask them to you. And then I'll point listeners to where they can connect with you and the wonderful organization that you've presenced and to speak a little bit about that. But before that, what is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Hmm. It's different every day. Yeah. And uh, I have this very sweet practice uh, with my husband before we go to bed. We exchange the highlights of our day. Sometimes I have to do it in my head because I have a lot. <laughs> Rituals of joy. There's something really nourishing to me about being able to walk outside my front door. I'm surrounded by trees. The deer are always eating grass outside my house. Sun is shining or not doesn't really matter, but I like walking out and putting my bare feet on the ground. I love that. I love having time in the morning and making it slow in the morning and following the flow, being with my plants, being with my, I don't know. I, just, yeah. I There's no like one thing. <laughs> but often when I think about it and, the, and we name the highlights at night, a lot of it is about having connection, is feeling just the graciousness of this, magnificent powerhouse of a force field that is like magnetically <laughs> literally fueling <laughs> my path mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all those are beautiful <laughs> what is something that this feels very fitting in this conversation because of the whole conversation around like you know, ways that coaches and healers are supposed to show up. But mm. what's, what's something that people would be surprised to learn about you? Mm. You know, I, I'll just tell you what I thought about yesterday. It's funny. I had this thought. It's like, it would be surprising to some people to know that I, like, once, you know, Adam Maliger, he's in the RPC. Adam taught me how to cut through blocks of wood with my hand. You know, you do the karate chop and you like do that. <laughs> I don't know why I just saw him recently and I thought about it. Yeah. I mean, maybe they might be surprised to know that I do really good imitations. <laughs> really good impressions. <laughs> oh, I mean, what's a very uh, logical follow-up to that. Show up in character. <laughs> who, who do you got in your arsenal right now? <laughs> I'm not going there. Okay. 
You've shared it. You've shared Friends enough. Family. Fair enough. <laughs> you have disclosed plenty in this conversation. No, no need to put you on the spot again. <laughs> the organization that you presence that you want to bring awareness to, which mm-hmm. I will donate to, and I highly encourage all of my listeners to Thank donate to. So much is called Free the Slaves. And I would love to hear from you. Just a brief description. What is Free the Slaves? Why does it matter to you? Thank you so much for opening that. I want to tell the story and I'm so grateful for this opportunity because this has been on my radar. I'm going to take some time so you can edit whatever you need to. So my life, my work, my being is about facilitating freedom in myself, in others, in the world. And this is not that like compulsive freedom. I'm so free. I do whatever I want. No, this is the aligned in surrender, in right rhythm, right timing, right relation freedom. Yeah. And it's become so much about consciousness and energy and blah, 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 and people and all of these good things, which I love. And I was still humbled. I was just so devastated when I actually realized through a talk of, that this man gave that bonded slavery is not a thing of the past. It's actually alive here now. And I think 34 million slaves, just let's take that in. That's like a small country. 34 million people, humans are in bonded labor around the world. That gives me chills. And the second part that really brought it home was that they are not just in India, they're not just in Thailand, you know, the sex slaves, the, no, 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 in the United States, in the Western world, in these places where we have abolished slavery, quote unquote, there are people living with indentured servitude now. So I was like, oh, that's a problem that I was not even aware of that. And I learned this. This is how life works. It's funny, I thought we might touch about this. On the day after, I ordered a slab of granite from my house because we were moving. We wanted to sell a house in Boston. And the realtor was like, you know, you need a kitchen counter. And I'd been reluctant to spend this money. You know, I grew up in India, came to the States. Taco Bell, that like, you know, $2 burrito used to make me get scared in my body of like spending $2. That's like, at that time, it was 120 rupees on one thing for myself. And that's the person who had to go through this. And $2,400 for a granite slab was just like, just didn't make any sense to me. Until she, Maria was like, you have to do this. Okay, so we do it. Order it. Done. Big girl panties. Ordered the slab. And then I find out through this talk that there not only are there 34 million people in slavery now, but the price of reformation for one life to get one person out of bonded slavery is $400. $400. It just broke me. And I don't know what else, like, I mean, there's so many, so many wonderful places to support him in the world. But that was huge. And I sat down, I cried. And actually, I was supposed to talk to Andy and we thought we might 
have a conversation on this. But I was like, I know that in my network, in the world that I now inhabit, there I know that at least a hundred people have $400 sitting in the bank account who would want to give it with joy and gratitude to free somebody out of this circumstance. And now I, I want to find all those hundred. So thank you for helping me do that. I'm, I'm so moved in, in all the ways by that chair. And I highly, highly encourage everyone who's listening to take the time, even if it's not the $400. It's trite to say, but all of the donations really matter. Mm -hmm. and it's human life that we're talking about and there's there's lots of ways in which we believe that we're all separate and there's ways we can get buried in the story of well it's it's not who am i to save the world but this isn't we're not asking to save the world we're asking to just make a difference just one life or something yeah. and uh, they have a beautiful website in systematically explains the situation it's free the slaves.org if i'm not wrong yeah but i will yeah. link to the correct url in the show notes and so listeners please highly encourage you go into the show notes click the link donate uh, it will make a difference and yeah in some ways, I kind of just want to end, end the interview there. And I usually ask what constitutes a meaningful life, but we have explored all of that and more <laughs> already, Ishida. <laughs> this feels like a good place to close for me. Is there is there anything else at all that you would like to share, including and, and not limited to maybe where folks can connect with you, learn more about you? Mm-hmm. First of all, I want to say thank you for showing up in your um, humanity. The, the more we can presence these, these parts of us, the more permission and freedom and healing we bring. So thank you for receiving mine and sharing yours. And to everybody who's listening, um, I would love to hear how this conversation touches you, if it does. And you can find me through cometocenter.com. And there's a lot churning. I don't know when this conversation goes live, what will be live, but I'm usually teaching and facilitating and opening courses that you might resonate with, which are all about embodying the sacred in our life, which are all about aligning with the call of your life and the deeper purpose of being alive in this way that we we've just been exploring so find me and tell us how how we moved here if at all and yeah feedback love to hear it well thank you so so much for taking the time to be on the show and to share a little bit of your gifts and embodied wisdom uh, with with my audience and with me it gives me such joy to be able to have folks like you on the podcast and hmm, there are no words that could do justice, just how, how meaningful it is to be able to do this with you. And I, I kind of just want to take a moment together here and just be with it. Yeah. Let's do that. Thank you, Mike. Hmm. Hmm.
Yeah. Your invitation to go slow is one that I remind myself of, but it really, the words don't even need to be spoken with you for the invitation to feel real. And so I'm just going to leave off by saying <laughs> to the listeners, slow down, check in with yourself. Thank you for listening. And whenever you are listening, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.